0: Stand by playback. And now... Lars. Real red meat radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show.
1: Somebody at the White
2: House has been smoking the devil's lettuce.
0: Honestly, provocative talk radio. More
2: than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the team in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are
0: women. Lars. never by Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad, I let you speak. Lawrence Larson. Welcome back to the Lawrence Larson
3: Show. And Joe Biden is launching another election year stunt. Now, this one's relatively small. I have to say that. But just this week, he announced plans to unilaterally cancel out $1.2 billion in student loan debt. Now, I've had so many people misunderstand what's going on here. They say, well, that's great. He canceled out the debt. No, let's say it honestly. Joe Biden is taking $1.2 billion in debt that is owed by young men and women who went to college. They got what they asked for and they took on the debt. And now Joe Biden is going to take your money from you. Seventy percent of Americans never went to college, never got a shot at a college degree. And Joe is going to take money from your taxes or he may borrow it from China or other places. And he's going to pay off that debt. If you say it that way, and most of the news media are calling it cancellation of debt. Well, think of it this way. If you loan somebody 100 bucks. And then the person falls on hard times and it was a personal loan and your buddy says, Hey, I know you loaned me a hundred bucks and it's been a long time and I just, I just can't pay it back. If you decide to cancel that debt, you're perfectly able to do it. I've done it for friends before. You, you're doing it by saying, I'm willing to take the hundred dollars I loaned to you and call it a gift. That's it. You get nothing. You don't get your hundred dollars back. Now, that's cancellation of debt on a personal level. If a business says we've been trying to collect this debt from one of our customers and they're just not going to pay, it's probably going to cost us more money to recover it than, we'll, than it'll ever be worth. That's a cancellation of debt. But even then, the business is saying we're owed $5,000 by this customer. We've been trying for years to get it back. We're not going to get it. That's one thing. That's where the business says we're willing to let that one go We're never going to get it back anyway. Joe Biden is doing something entirely different because he's taking a class of people. Many of them are people who are some of the highest wage earners in America, because an awful lot of the people who borrowed this debt and still owe the money back are people who ended up in professions. They ended up as doctors. They ended up as engineers. They ended up in good jobs and they could pay it back. But I'm sure that most of them say, Hey, I'm making good money right now, but you want to forgive all that debt? You go right ahead and they're going to make somebody else pay. So, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, that forgiveness of debt is going to benefit people who make a whole lot more money every year than the people who are going to be paying the debt, which is American taxpayers. So, I've framed the question this way Joe Biden keeps on canceling out student debt. Is this legitimate or is it an election year stunt? I would call it an election year stunt. Now, Joe Biden, way back in 2019 and 2020, when he was running for president of the United States, he announced, I'm going to get student loan debt forgiveness. And he promised about $10,000 for every person who'd taken out a loan. It's not being done, though, based on the basis of need, it's also not being based on the basis of circumstances. As you understand, a lot of those people who got loans out so they could become a doctor, a nurse, an engineer, a lawyer, any of those professions, some of those people are the ones who have the greatest amount of money, but they also make the biggest salaries. So take that into consideration. If Joe Biden, I, I still don't think it would be right to go out and pay off student loan debt for people who ought to pay their debts back. But even if that were the case, would you do it based on need? You'd say, well, show us your circumstances. Yeah, I went to college, and then my mom got sick while I was in college, and I had to drop out early, and I was never able to go back and finish. Maybe you'd say that's a sympathetic case. We'll forgive you of some of your debt. But how about all the people, especially during the pandemic? There were doctors and lawyers and others who'd literally taken out hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans. They went to top-flight schools. They didn't go to the state university. They didn't get the first two years out of the way in junior college. They went to the best of the best, and they borrowed gigantic money to do it. And then they had their loans frozen during the pandemic. Do you know there was one study of this that actually showed – those were the people who benefited the most. I know the popular picture that's made by local reporters who, or network reporters who say, here's this poor student who's trying to go to school and he either finished his degree and found out the degree wasn't worth the sheepskin that it was written on, or you say this is a person who's tried and tried and tried to get a job in his or her profession. No luck there. No, they didn't talk about the doctor or the lawyer or the other individual who's got a couple of hundred thousand dollars in debt, and just for giving the payments without interest for a couple of years was worth twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars. In other words, in some cases, the amount of money that professional who has that degree that helped them get that high-paying job would save more in interest payments during a single year than the average American who's working for wages earns in a year. That's the kind of outrageous nature this has. So, is this a legitimate move by Joe Biden, or is it an election year stunt? I would say election year stunt. You can uh, find the... Expole used to be called Twitter at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com, our website. It's always brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined the group. You should too. Just go to AMAC.us or call 888 262 2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Let me tell you what's coming up this hour. The latest gambit of woke politics is to troll back through history and cancel anything unsavory. From street names, confederate bases, and now dinosaur names too. With almost 40% of all personal income taxes going just to pay the debt. Uh, the interest on America's debt should the government start prioritizing reducing the national debt over all other expenditures? We'll get to that as well. If the Supreme Court's decision to not take the case of a high school says they're okay with racist policies in high schools, we're talking about one of the most elite public schools in America, public, not private. It's located in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And I'll tell you what, I think this is crazy that the Supreme Court would not take this up. Let's go to your calls. Thomas in Alabama, what's on your mind, sir?
1: Hey, just, uh, it's been a long time since I was in college. And, you know, I just, the the whole landscape of higher education has changed so much in the last 20 years and not for the better. And why is it not, you know, student loan or not, I mean, Why is it not a bigger issue every two years when the entire House of Representatives and either the president or certain governors are up for election of just the the joke that higher education has become? And there's absolutely, in most cases, there's just no... there. You, There's no benefit to the cost. I mean, the you you, you could fix are... this,
3: Thomas. Most of the universities in America are public universities. The ones in Alabama are, for the most part, public institutions. You could tell your state legislature... To instruct the universities, you either straighten this up and bring down the cost of education. It is at the stratosphere right now. Bring it down or you lose state support. And that means state money that goes to those universities. That's a fix you could get right now.
4: Hi.
0: At least someone has a plan for illegal aliens.
5: Back in the White House, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration
3: and begin the largest deportation operation in American history. This
0: is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the
3: Lars Larson Show. Did the U.S. Supreme Court just effectively sign off on the idea that a public high school, a very elite public high school in the Commonwealth of Virginia can engage in actively discriminating in favor of some students and against others based on race or ethnicity. I thought we'd put that question to Mark Miller, who's a senior attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Mark, welcome back to the program. Always good to join you, Lars. Would you mind telling my audience about TJ High Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, a public school in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and what they've done that got them that ended them up uh, potentially going before the U.S. Supreme Court until the Supreme Court said, nah, we don't need to hear this one. They're doing okay.
5: Yeah, so this week we, we definitely took a, a bit of a loss uh, at Pacific Legal Foundation, but we're going to be back for more. Um, and it involved race discrimination at the high school level, the K-12 level. Thomas Jefferson High School is one of the preeminent public schools. It's a magnet school in Fairfax County uh, in Northern Virginia. And for years it was known for being very difficult to get into with an emphasis on standardized tests and a colorblind admission policy. But then in 2020, in the wake of the controversies that summer, um, they ended up at the end of the year changing their admission policy. The reason they changed it, they were fairly uh, open about it. There were many complaints about the racial balancing in the admissions policy. So this colorblind admission policy has led to about 70%, a little over 70% of the student body being Asian-American. Yep. And there were complaints about that. And so they changed the policy. They made it n- no longer standardized test-based. And immediately the following year, the Asian-American population dropped from a little over 70% to a little over 50%. So a 20% swing. Uh, they affected the racial change they were looking to affect. And Coalition for Commerce Jefferson High School, represented by Pacific Legal, sued and said that's race discrimination.
3: And you had a very clear case, almost one of those, what do they call it, prima facie case, where you say this isn't some small change. This is where you dumped a bunch of Asian-American students in favor of other students of other colors, and you did it not based on their skills and abilities. You did it based on their race and their ethnicity, right?
5: You know, and Lawrence, it's not just you and me saying it. The district court, a judge, a neutral judge, a federal court appointed, uh, you know, life, lifetime tenure, looked at the facts and said it was clear that this was done in a racially discriminatory manner and it impacted these Asian American students. And he, uh, that judge, enjoined. The uh, change in the policy and, re- and told the, the uh, school board to reinstate the colorblind, the neutral policy. But unfortunately, the appeals court, the Fourth Circuit, uh, overruled him, and they said, "Nope, it's okay." This is really amazing for your listeners. It's okay that it did have this negative impact because the amount of Asian Americans in the applicant pool was still not was still greater than that fifty four percent that actually were accepted. So even though it was discriminatory, even though there was evidence that it was discriminatory, the fact remains that Asian Americans still got in at a high percentage. And so this discrimination is apparently OK. And Justice Alito earlier this week wrote a dissent from the denial of the Supreme Court said so we're not going to hear this case. Alito wrote a scathing dissent, basically teeing up what I just said and said, this is outrageous. This is what Students for Fair Admission, the college admissions cases from last year, were supposed to say no more to. And it needs to be reconsidered in a, in a case c- to come soon. Uh, and I should mention Thomas agreed with Alito in that dissent.
3: Yeah, Thomas was in there as well. Mark Miller is with Pacific Legal. Let me test my knowledge on this. All it takes for the U.S. Supreme Court to hear a case is four out of the nine have to say we should hear this one, right? That's exactly right. That's what we call the rule of four. That's right. So that that means that we didn't even have four Supreme Court justices who thought this was an injustice and should be heard.
5: It's really remarkable. You know, there was another case that was denied. Um, it was not a PLF case, but that's on rent control. We had Justice Thomas in that case this week write a statement explaining why that wasn't a good case. Why like, well, it was two of them. Why he didn't think those were the right cases to challenge rent control. Be that as it may. This was different. I, you know, this, you have uh, Alito writing a scathing dissent, and he clearly was disappointed in his colleagues at the court, colleagues who would, you know, particularly Chief Justice Roberts, um, you know, he certainly gets his complaints from the right side out of the aisle. Me but, too,
3: yeah. Uh, <laughs> <I don't>, I'm <laughs> not a fan, let's say yes, it that way. But on
5: race discrimination, he has been strong. I think everyone knows that. He had said years ago the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. He's been very... Uh, straightforward on that topic. But here, he certainly does seem to have let down at least Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, who you don't see scathing dissents like this from denials of uh, hearing a case very often.
3: Now I'm not sure Mark, that I can remember this exactly, but there have been famous race cases like reverse discrimination, the Baki case, things like that but but in cases like that they they've, sometimes I think they've waved them off, said, well, it's kind of moot now because Baki's already you know graduated from medical school somewhere else or or whatever. I don't remember that one precisely, but in this case, you've got real human beings, Asian American boys and girls who had the smarts to go to TJ high and were told, no, you can't." Uh, you're not the right color. If you'd been black or Hispanic or maybe even a white, we'd have let you in. But because you're Asian, uh, Asian descent, uh, you're, you're not allowed to go. These are This is real damage being done to real people, right? There was actually 54 less Asian-American students
5: accepted that following year after the change was put in place. So you can say whether it would be 54, 53, 52, 55, who knows? But you can say that this 20% shift, that was done to effectively and intentionally to change the, the makeup. Now, they, the school board would try and deny that, but there was evidence that the district court would not have ruled against the school board. If the district judge wasn't sure, there was well,
3: plenty of evidence to prove that. How, how do they deny that this isn't – in the past, as I understand it, there are kids – oftentimes not from wealthy families you're not thinking well these are kids who you know come from families got lots of money for tutors and all these other gizmos and trips and things like that these are kids who just sat down and did the skull sweat in front of a set of books and scored the you know scored on tests so they'd be so they could show by their scores and abilities that they were able to do the work at tj high and they're being told sorry too bad Uh, If you're a different color, we'd let you in. That's the effective message, right?
5: Yeah, that is the effective message. What Justice Alito pointed out uh, in really the, the strongest moment in his dissent is what he said is what the Fourth Circuit held was that race discrimination is okay if it's not too severe. And the consequence of that is what you just said. Actual individuals are being hurt and not being allowed into this very prestigious public school system. Through no fault of their own, they've earned the right to go under the rules that were in place, but then the school board changed the rules to allow other people, more preferred people, to get in instead.
3: I mean, Mark, uh, maybe they don't teach this in law school, but is is not too severe kind of like being a little bit pregnant? I mean, isn't race discrimination just what it is? You either did discriminate or you didn't. You can't say, well, it was only a little bit of discrimination. Can you?
5: Yeah, I can't argue with that analogy. I think that's a great analogy, largely You have me smiling and um, because analogies are the way we make our cases as lawyers, and that is about as good as it gets. And that's really what Alito's point was, what Justice Thomas signed up, on, signed up for as well. And there are a number of cases coming to try and get this heard. You could argue, of course, we don't know why the other justices didn't sign on, but oftentimes they like to let a big ruling – uh, simmer for a while before they return to it. So Students for Fair Admissions was decided last year, the Harvard and North Carolina school uh, decisions. And so perhaps you could say that the justices who shied away from this case just simply didn't want to wade back into the race in schools issue so quickly. But Pacific Legal and other organizations like us, but specifically Pacific Legal, we have cases in New York City, Boston, and Montgomery County, Maryland. The Boston case is teed up to be uh, challenged to the Supreme Court um, this spring. And we're going to be making basically the same arguments, the same arguments that persuaded Alito. And sooner or later, I would predict the Supreme Court's going to have to address this issue because you can't hide, you can't cloak race discrimination. If that's as simple as it is, then, you know, what's the point of the rule, you
3: know? It doesn't make any sense. Mark Miller, who's a senior attorney with Pacific Legal. Mark, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Back in a moment, we'll get to your phone calls and emails. Should dinosaur species names be updated to be, I kid you not, more inclusive? That's coming up next. The Lars Larson
0: Show. Is coming. A message from Lars. I'd like to apologize to anyone I've not offended yet. Please be patient. I'll get to you shortly. Who's next? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back
3: to the Lars Larson Show. It's not going to surprise you one little bit before I get to calls uh, that now the names of virtually everything have become political footballs. And in this case, we're talking about dinosaur names. The the journal Nature writes about how, and here's the way they describe it, to explore how dinosaur naming has changed over the past 200 years, Emma Dunn, a paleobiologist at a university in Nuremberg, Germany, and her colleagues analyzed the names of all the dinosaur fossils uh, from about 251 million years ago to 66 million years ago. There are about 1,500 names in all. I don't think they got all of them into Jurassic Park. The authors wanted to know how much effort it would take to address what they saw as, I kid you not, problematic names for dinosaurs, which they describe as those, quote, emanating racism, sexism or named under neocolonial context, or after controversial figures. They found several such names, about 3% of the total. So apparently, the dinosaur names are not nearly as offensive as they thought they might end up being. But some of the names the team identified derive for colonial names for lands where species have been discovered. But some of the names are just plain common sense. For example, Stegosaurus, I didn't know this, but in Greek, That would be combinations of a couple of words that mean roof lizard. Okay, because the animal has spines on on the back and plates on the side. Triceratops means three-horned face. Now, that's actually kind of convenient. But they say many of the dinosaurs discovered during a series of expeditions about 100 years ago, 1908 to 1920, were discovered in places like Tanzania, by German explorers, which was then part of German East Africa, and ended up being, oh, the horror, named after German people instead of locals. The use of eponyms, naming a species after a person or persons, has become more common in recent years. They say they found that in some cases, a species had a gender-named ending, and the majority were masculine. Well, i got to tell you something. I know in English... We don't put gender on words, but in about 50% of the languages spoken on planet Earth, gender is a part of the language. I, I still kind of wonder, with everybody trying to say, well, what's your pronoun, and are you he, she, or some other invention in between, how are they going to deal with all the languages where every single noun has a gender? I don't, I don't think they're going to be able to handle it. In any case, I'll get to your calls now at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And as always, naysayers go to the head of the line. Let's go first to Joseph. Hey, Joseph, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you very much, and it's good to talk to you. Hey, to nice talk I, to you as well. The,
4: <laughs> the uh, ta- uh, student loan forgiveness I agree with you 100 percent that it's they're buying votes. Yep. And to me, okay, should they should be taxed on that? That's a
0: I, gift.
3: I, I agree with you, and and in fact, I, I'm not a tax law expert, but I know that th- taxes sometimes hit people uh, in ways you wouldn't expect, like when during the the 08 financial crash uh, and other times where things have seriously gone south, especially in real estate when you find people who say owed a mortgage of a quarter million dollars and the bank ended up saying, "Okay, we'll take a short sale and you end up, you know, the the person who owned the house who can't make the payments anymore gets a 40 or 50 thousand dollar benefit because the bank takes the house back, auctions it off and say you owed 250,000, but the sale of the house uh, produces 200,000. So the bank basically forgives the 50,000 if they forgive it as opposed to telling you, you've got to pay it back anyway. Um, I know the IRS looks at that as income. They'll say, well, you just made 50 grand. And you say, no, I didn't. I lost my house because I couldn't make the payments." And they say, yes, but you were forgiven of of a $50,000 debt. You have to pay taxes on it. And since the average effective tax rate for Americans is about 20%, 20% of 50 grand is some serious cash, isn't it? It is for sure. Now, the well, question will be, it. if Joe Biden forgives, say, $10,000 chunks of people's student loan debt, will they be expected to pay 20% of it? I don't know. I, I guess it depends on how the Joe Biden IRS behaves, because they could go to all those people and say, you got $10,000 in loan forgiveness, your effective tax rate was 20% or so. That's usually the federal. And, uh, and so you owe $2,000 this year. I can imagine what's going to happen, uh, because there will be people who will be shocked by that. They say, hold on, I, I don't have student loan payments anymore on the 10000 but I, I now owe the IRS two grand right now, yeah. payable immediately. That's going to be a shock, isn't it? It sure will. Well, thank you for the time. You bet. Thanks, Joseph. I appreciate the calls. Go to Alabama and talk to Jason. Hey, Jason, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind?
1: Yeah, man, I was listening to a guy with a student loan forgiveness, you know, thing. you know, I, I believe in some of it, but not all of it. I believe we should give student loan forgiveness to these nurses that put themselves out on the lines and went to school, you know, and saved lives during COVID and all those other things, you know, and people that took care of you. I think you should forgive their student loans, but not everybody's. Also veterans. I think you should forgive those. I know theirs get paid, but if they had to get them, they still should be taken care of.
3: Well, I know that there, you know, the the law that uh Biden tried to use and got shot down by the Supreme Court was called the Heroes Act and it was designed to give mm-hmm. forgiveness specifically to both uh military members whose lives were interrupted uh by the 911 by the 911 terrorist attack and all of a sudden you're mm-hmm. you're called up for National Guard duty and sent to the other side of the planet that was what that and to some extent to first responders but and and I I'm not sure I agree with you on the nurses let me tell you why uh, because my mom was a nurse, so I've got a soft spot for nurses. But if you went to mm-hmm. school and you owed, you know, uh, say, of substan- the average, I guess nationwide, is about thirty-two grand. But that doesn't yeah. mean all nurses have that kind of bill. But uh, I've asked people who hire nurses, you know, to hospitals and clinics and such. They say a typical nurse coming out of school is going to make sixty grand a year. Now, if the average yeah. loan is yours, thirty-two thousand, that's a payment of three hundred bucks a month. If that nurse is pulling down $5,000 a month gross, you really think she's worried about a $300 student loan payment?
1: Mostly not. I was just saying in sincerity to the to the people that put their sales out there, and they could have got sick and died. And I'm not saying everybody got COVID and everybody, you know, lived through all that. I believe some of it was just too far out there on some things. Now, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I also believe, you know, my wife's a nurse, my mom's a nurse. So that's my soft spot for them. You know, my mama can, just... Was can I ask totally you a question about,
3: so, about since you brought up COVID, when when COVID mm-hmm. came, came along, did the places where your mom and your wife worked, did they tell people you have to get the jab or we have to fire you? No, they did not. Oh, um, good, well, they, just,
1: they tried to. They tried to, but they couldn't legally.
3: Yeah, well, Joe Biden found that out too. I mean, it's amazing the number yeah. of illegal things Joe Biden tried to do. But in places where... Some nurses got fired and other nurses didn't say a word. I'm concerned about that. Let's go to Nevada and talk (laughs) to AJ. Hey, AJ, welcome to the Lars Larson Show.
6: Hey, Lars, it's
7: nice to talk to you.
3: Nice to talk to you as well. What's on your mind?
7: Um, I just wanted to clarify a couple things that you said about the short sales um, and paying the taxes on it. I did over 1,000 short sales. I have a legal background and I also am a real estate broker.
0: Good, then you're better prepared than me.
7: That that money that they were given uh, that was taken from them that they didn't have to pay back the government rewarded those not the banks not the mortgage bankers not the uh, bank uh, banks themselves because they were not the lenders on the, the loan they were, it was an investor so that investor was rewarded to do a short sell so if he forgave fifty thousand dollars that investor not the bank. Not the lender, not the mortgage banker. He was rewarded to do the short sale. Perhaps he actually made more money
2: than he would have if he would have gotten a straight sale.
3: That's a good answer. A.J., thank you very much. I'm glad you're listening. I have got some intelligence into the show instead plan to get to your calls. We'll get to that in just a moment. I want to talk to our friend, Akash Choghali, who is Senior Advisor for Americans for Prosperity. Akash, welcome back.
8: How are you? Thanks for having me
3: back on, Lars. I'm doing well, except now we're spending more on interest on the national debt than we even do on the defense of this great country. It's got that bad, hasn't it?
8: It has. That should be an astounding statistic for your listeners. Um, this is something that wasn't expected to happen for another four or five years, but given the rate at which we've spent over the last decade plus, we now have that, uh, you know, really unfortunate circumstance. Just to make that clear for your listeners, obviously, when we borrow money from countries like China and others, we have to pay it back with interest, just like, you know, you pay back interest on a home loan or anything like that. The interest cost for borrowing the money that we're spending is now more expensive than our national defense. It's also more expensive than Medicare. And so I think the uh, the uncomfortable truth that people need to come to terms with is, one, both parties are to blame for this problem. Donald Trump is bad about this. Joe Biden is bad about this. Um, not, but not just who's to blame, but what the real culprit is. And the real culprits of our overspending are those mandatory spending entitlement programs. They are Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, and the debt interest. If we don't do anything about those programs, people are headed for some really, really uncomfortable pain when those programs start getting cut within the next decade. And so the time to start, uh, you know, thinking about solutions is right now.
3: Well, and in fact, I think the time to think about it was 30 years ago. But we, some of us have been talking about it that long. And, and yet nobody wants to touch the third rail. Because what will you help me out with this? Because I use this as an example, but my memory is faded. It was either Chile or Peru or one of those countries that about that time, you know, 30, 40 years ago, said, hey, to its citizens, uh, you, can, you can be in, in their version of Social Security or you can go out with your money and take it out into the marketplace and, you know, take your chances. And people, you know, in America, I've heard people say, oh, that's crazy. I don't want to take my chances. I want a guaranteed check when I get old. And what they found was after, I think, 30 years, the, most of those people who took the I'm going to the private marketplace option uh, are now living on something like 85% of their working paycheck, which sounds pretty good. Is that the way it worked out? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. There's a few countries that have experimented with that, but we have that model
8: here in the United States, right? It's a 401k versus like a, you know, a defined benefit pension plan. Those pension plans are absolute dinosaurs. These A lot of these unions have kind of over-promised and under-delivered, while people who are invested in 401ks have obviously been going gangbusters the last couple of decades. And so, We have a sort of analogous model to look at, um, and we're in a a parallel situation, which is that people work and they pay into Social Security and they feel entitled to those benefits, which is totally fair. But the fact of the matter is the government has been overpromising what it can deliver. And right now, if we don't change anything in current law, because of this shortfall that Social Security is facing, there is a 23 percent cut to people's Social Security benefits coming eight years from now because of the shortfall if we don't do anything to change it. And so when you hear politicians like Donald Trump and Joe Biden say that they're not going to touch social security, what they are doing is supporting that 23% cut to people's benefits because they're unwilling to have the difficult conversations right now about amending the program, not for current retirees or people near retirement, but for younger people in their thirties their twenties, even their teens who are either new in the workforce or not even in the workforce. We need to start looking at reforms to those programs now so that we can avoid those cuts within the next decade well
3: and in fact i get a lot of pushback, at akash from people who say first of all don't call it entitlements to which i usually say well you're entitled to it aren't you well yeah i'm entitled to social security okay then we'll call it an entitlement that's this you know that's the term of art you could call it bananas for all i care but it doesn't change what it is but once you get to that how much of the entire federal budget the part we can c- or could cut if if anybody had the courage, is made up of entitlements. It's about two-thirds of the federal budget, isn't it?
8: That, that's exactly right. It's two-thirds of the federal budget, and it's more than that uh, as far as the growth of spending. And so the thing that folks hear about in the news, right, these annual appropriations, government funding, you know, the government – we're facing a shutdown fight and the Republicans in Congress talk a big game about cutting spending. And, you know, we should we should kind of hold the process hostage. All of that amounts to less than one third of all federal spending. Right. We are completely ignoring these mandatory programs that are on autopilot. They're not even at issue when we have these, quote unquote, government, you know, shutdown government funding sites. Um, and so I think the way that we change that, frankly, and the lesson, I think, for your listeners is that, There have been moments in our history where spending did become a major inflection point, a major priority issue, the Tea Party wave, obviously sort of some of this COVID spending that the President Biden, the Democrats have pushed through that caused inflation. And so we've had moments where actually addressing spending was a political priority because the grassroots were making it one. We are badly in need of another moment like that, because if we don't do that and, and there's a lot of other important issues too, Lars, but if we ignore spending, what we're doing is we're empowering communist China and we're crowding out the funding that our federal government has for border security, for transportation, for national defense, and all these other things that they're supposed to be doing. Medicare and Medicaid Social Security are crowding out all these other priorities, and that problem is only going to get worse if people are not demanding reforms through our entitlement programs and our federal budget.
3: And, and I want people to understand, when we get to that point eight years from now, uh let's say you're expect I forget what the average is for social security recipients I'm not one of them. Uh but if you uh if you said uh okay you're expecting to get 3 grand between you and your wife you're going to get 3 grand a month in social security. Well guess what it's going to be 2250 instead. And you say hold on a second we were banking on 3 grand. It's going to be that kind of cut for everybody in the system or only for the new people entering the system? No, every single
8: Social Security beneficiary is facing 23% cut to their benefits if the shortfall is unaddressed eight years from now. And so, again, that is current benefit, people who are currently counting on this program, people who are near retirement. And so people who rely on this program are the ones who support people like Biden and Trump when they make a promise not to touch Social Security. What they need to understand is that the millionaires and billionaires are going to be just fine if their Social Security check gets cut by 23 percent. It's struggling seniors. It's the middle class. It's you know lower income Americans who stand to be hurt the most from people ignoring this problem. And, and for all her other faults and, and long shot effort, you know, this is the one issue that Nikki Haley has been very, very righteous on on the campaign trail. There are very few people in Congress. Speaker Mike Johnson is one of them. He deserves a lot of credit for pursuing a debt commission to try to address this. And so there are really very, very few kind of mainstream politicians uh, who are taking this problem seriously. I think they deserve credit, and constituents of other folks across this country, other elected leaders, those constituents need to start demanding that their representatives take this issue seriously
3: as well. You know, we got to talk about this more on a night when we got more than 30 seconds left. But, Akash, I'm just afraid that when they go out and say, well, we're going to means test. So if you spent every dime you made, didn't put away anything for the future, uh, you're going to get the biggest Social Security check if we means tested. And if you were the person who actually carefully saved, paid off a house, put money in a IRA or 401K, uh, and then you get cut, you're the ones who are going to get cut the most. And that's probably, in my mind, the most likely solution they're going to try. That's Akash Chogale from Americans for Prosperity. Lars Larson
6: Show. A promise is. Okay, it's
9: a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback.
0: I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show.
1: Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce.
0: Honestly, provocative talk radio. More
2: than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars.
0: Never apologize. For be a patriot. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad, I let you speak. Lars Larson.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Wednesday, and it's honestly provocative talk radio for America. And you're invited to join the conversation. I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts. But after that, if you want to jump in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, you disagree with me. You see how we treat naysayers. I don't mind when they call. I want them to make a cogent argument and then be willing to stand up for what they said. Usually that's where it falls apart. So I like to ask for permission to ask a few questions of naysayers just so that it can show the folly in their position. But if you can stand up to that, we're good to go. Now, I want to tell you about something. It comes from my neck of the woods. But it is so evil you need to know about this because... People like George Soros have some evil designs on all of America, and yet George Soros and people allied with him are conducting experiments in America. And I want to tell you how this comes about, because it can come about, it'll sound like a great thing. You'll hear about a move at your state legislature or a ballot measure, and you'll say, yeah, that seems like a good idea. We don't want to uh, send a drug addicts to prison. That was the popular refrain. But let me tell you what happened. The Democrats made a deal with the devil, and it actually sounds like a script for a low-budget horror flick. So... A big pile of campaign contributions to keep politicians in office, in this case, as usual, the Democrats. But in exchange, you have to agree to a big and growing pile of dead constituents. It's just about that blunt. So the Democrats said, yeah, so we get a bunch of money for our campaigns. We just have to accept that some of our constituents are going to end up dead. Okay, done deal, they said. By the way, that dead pile of constituents, it includes children as well. So let me tell you, you know that we base this program out of our main studios in Portland, Oregon. Now, Portlandia is a pretty crazy place. So three years ago, the voters in the state were presented with a ballot measure that effectively legalized hard drugs. And I have to explain that. When I say effectively, you say, hold on, Lars, you're using a weasel word there. What does that mean? Well, imagine this. I mean, I used to live, as a kid, I lived a couple of times in the state of Montana. It's a great state. Now, I don't know if the speeding laws are still this way, but for a long time, Montana was kind of a legend because you say, well, do they have speed limits in Montana? And you'd hear back from people who live there, and again, I I don't know if this is still true, but somebody's sure to email me or call me and tell me. They said, yeah, you get caught speeding. Say you're going, I think sometimes the limits are as high as 80 miles an hour, which I think is great because they have great freeways, through, and they're straight, and they're long, and they're usually kept in good repair. But if you get pulled over for speeding, the fine is $5, and you might even be able to pay it on the spot. Now, for most people, that's a good deal. You say, okay, I can go as fast as I think is safe, and if an officer pulls me over, he's going to tell me it's a $5 ticket, and I pay him, and I go on my, about my way. So, what happens? Well, in the legalization of hard drugs, here's what I mean by effectively legal. They said, we don't want to send people to prison for simply possession of drugs like heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, and fentanyl. Well, the fact is... For ordinary possession, they don't send people to prison. They don't even spend much time in jail. But they are threatened with a felony conviction, which in theory could send you to prison. But as I said, these days, prisons all over America are mostly for the worst of the worst of the worst. Rapists, murderers, really serious criminals, or people involved in drugs who are on the drug dealing side. The ones who are caught with a few pounds of heroin or methamphetamine or fentanyl, yeah, that can get you to prison, and it should. But what they said in this ballot measure was, we want you to simply write the drug addict that you catch with fentanyl or heroin or cocaine, we want you to write them a ticket. And the ticket is $100. But then you have to tell the drug addict, this is what police officers were forced to do, you have to tell this addict that you just wrote up, For what used to be a felony which is now basically like a bad traffic ticket you have to tell them if you call this 1-800 telephone number you're going to talk to somebody all you have to do is talk with them about going into drug treatment and then the hundred dollars goes away and the ticket goes away so how did this get passed well it got passed because the evil billionaire George Soros through his East Coast drug policy alliance funded this ballot measure he put about five million bucks into this most of the money came from him or from the drug policy alliance which is funded by soros now why would they do that the opposition side though folks who said don't pass this it's going to be disastrous it's going to kill people they raised less than 10 percent in fact i think it was about three percent so five million dollars comes in to pass the ballot measure $200,000 $200,000 is raised to oppose the ballot measure. Guess which side won? Yeah, the money worked. The voters said yes. And the legalization in the last couple of years has produced, and the numbers just came out this week, the single biggest increase in fentanyl overdose deaths in all of America. Now, if you say, Lars, we know that fentanyl deaths are increasing nationwide. I mean, it's It's huge might be 100,000 people or more who die of fentanyl this year. That's true. It has gone up. In the last several years, the amount of fentanyl overdose deaths has increased by about 100%. It's doubled in the last three or four years. How much has it gone up where this ballot measure was passed by the evil George Soros? The death rate has now reached the highest point of any American state. 1,500 percent. If you want to think about it a different way, while fentanyl overdose deaths have doubled in America, they've gone up two times in America, they've gone up 15 times where this ballot measure was passed, and the body bags are piling up. Now, they've done some polls just a couple of years after the voters voted overwhelmingly, 58 percent yes, let's replace felony treatment of drug addicts with a ticket that you don't even have to pay. Now they've gone out and they've surveyed the voters. The same voters who voted that are now saying by a two thirds majority, 64% of them say, let's go back. Let's do, let's go back to the old rules. Now, the problem is the legislature, which could act very quickly, is controlled by majority Democrats, in one case, a supermajority, and they know. If they cancel the Soros drug experiment, the one that uses Americans as the lab rats in the experiment, they're going to lose big time donors that keep them in office. Not just George Soros, but a lot of other liberals who say, no, we think drug legalization is great. It works great in Portugal. Why wouldn't it work here? Well, the laws for civil commitment are different in Portugal as well. So guess what? The Democrats are once again offered a choice, stacks of body bags or stacks of campaign cash. Now, I'll give you three guesses which one Democrats pick in that case, and the body bags are going to keep piling up. Glad to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to take your phone calls and your emails. Coming up, has hate against churches and Christians in particular been rising dramatically in just the last five years? We'll talk about it next on The Lars Larson Show.
0: always ask Lars if he wants to run for public office, like president. Do you know how much power I'd have to give up to be president? This is the Lars Larson Show.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I guess you'd have to say, as I like to say, I have a dog in the fight in this following issue because I am a Christian. I'm a Protestant Christian. And so I care a lot more about my faith. uh, And I'd be honest about that. I care more about my faith. But I want everybody in America to be able to practice the faith of their choice. Some people sadly practice no faith at all, and that's especially sad. But now we have seen in the last several years a gigantic increase in violence against Christians in particular. Now, this is the kind of thing where you find out which groups of people Uh, It's okay if bad things happen to them in America. The mainstream media, for the most part, ignores it. So if you see offenses against a Muslim mosque, you're going to see news reports and probably police investigations. If you see attacks on a Jewish synagogue, you're going to see lots of news reports and lots of action by the police. Christian churches, not so much. And the young lady who knows all about this is Ariel Del Turco, who's with the Family Research Council and the author of a brand new report titled Hostility Against Churches is on the Rise in the United States. Arielle, welcome to the program.
6: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Now, I don't want to misstate the results of this. How much has violence specifically directed at Christians increased in America?
6: Yeah, so Family Research Council has been tracking this since 2018, um, and we have seen a significant increase over that period of time, especially uh, from last year, 2023 to 2022. Uh, last year, we saw 436 what we call acts of hostility against churches. That includes vandalism and arson, uh, bomb threats, uh, gun-related violence, and other types of incidents. Um and that is more than double the previous year, which was only 195, which is still significant, but it's more than double. Uh, And even 2022 was double what 2021 is. So this is a rapidly increasing problem. And we think it's a serious concern for anyone who cares about religious freedom, who cares about the ability of people to go to church without feeling like they are being targeted by their community, or especially feeling like they might not even be safe. So we think this is something worth looking at.
3: I think it is, and not just because of my, pro- my Christian bias. So, But, Ariel, I always tell my audience if I've got a dog in the fight so that it, they understand I'm, I'm not afraid to disclose my biases. But what's driving it?
6: That's really the question at hand. And it's hard to know, right? It's hard to know what's going on in the human heart. Uh, but we see some trends in culture that seem to be correlating with this, right? We see in media where churches are presented as uh, old-fashioned and backward, and that religion is seen as a, a source of oppression for different minority groups. And we see in, in the mainstream media where uh, churches are seen as an obstacle to, quote-unquote, women's rights to abortion or, uh, LG, or the LGBT community, and we know that this is a misframing of the issues and that these are lies, but this is what the media and academia are. Uh, and how, this is how they're painting Christianity and Christians. So, of course, it makes sense that we're going to see a collapse in societal respect for Christianity as a result of that. And I think this is just one of the physical manifestations of, of this.
3: You know, one of the, I, I might be a little more bold than you were, but you've been very diplomatic. But I think that they're actually presented not just Christian churches, presented not just as uh, as old-fashioned or oh, yeah, that's the way America used to be, uh, that they're presented with hostility, that they that there are there are people in mainstream politics who will say, well this is this is white Christian nationalism. Now I'm not quite sure what they mean. It's tough when you ask people, well, what exactly do you mean by that? They can't usually tell you what they mean by that, but it paints Christians in an especially negative light, as though if you're associated with Christianity, you might just be a white Christian nationalist, and they throw race into it as well. Could that be a piece of this?
6: Yeah, I think you're spot on. And sometimes the political issues really come to the surface. We saw, uh, especially after the Dobbs decision, there was a massive spike in in crimes against churches where vandalism was left with really ugly threats. Uh, and even this year, around the time that Ohio was uh, making a decision on issue one, which was a ballot measure that sadly passed and that uh, enshrined abortion rights in, in the state constitution there. Uh, we saw many churches uh, targeted, uh, pro-life churches targeted over that effort. So sometimes these uh, political issues that seem to be under the surface or even just this Uh, this unexplicable hatred and anger towards Christianity and, and the beliefs that Christianity represents, it really comes to the surface in many of these incidents.
3: I'm talking to Ariel Del Turco, who's with the Family Research Council and the author of this new report titled Hostility Against Churches on the Rise in the United States. Where can people find that online before I ask anything else?
6: Yeah, you can find it at FRC.org. It's on the main page or FRC.org slash hostility against churches.
3: Okay, so how much of this, Ariel, has something to do with both transgender issues, which have come to the fore in the last half dozen years in a way I've never seen them in America before, and, and other issues of sexuality and people's lifestyles?
6: Well, we saw a handful of incidents that tended to be motivated by uh, what I would call transgender violence. Uh, We saw vandalism that said trans power. Uh, And, of course, we saw earlier this year the Covenant school shooting where uh, a trans identifying girl went into a Christian school on a church property and, of course, had a mass shooting there. So we have seen some incidents like that. Um, but in some ways, it's hard to quantify. It's hard to quantify what exactly is motivating these attacks. And sometimes, as you indicated, uh, the motivations, pe- people don't always say, you know what, I'm going up to this church and I'm going to tear down a statue or throw a brick in the window uh because, of, because the church represents an obstacle to uh, transgender identities or policies. However, sometimes that just seeps in through the culture, right? This lack of respect for Christianity because we are seen as uh, an obstacle to uh, whatever the latest fad in these faux rights are, uh, it seeps in, and so we don't know the full effect of, of some of these lies and these harmful narratives that the media is telling.
3: Well, and even if they know, if the authorities know what the cause was, I mean, I, I'd give you, you the one you mentioned, the uh, Covenant School uh, that uh, in Nashville, where there was this horrible shooting. It apparently involved a transgender individual who left behind a manifesto that had, uh, since p- parts of it have leaked out, uh, it left a, a great indication of, of why this happened and what the motivations might have been. And they took all ki- that they being the authorities, police, etc took all kinds of efforts to try to make sure that that didn't become public or didn't become public very quickly. What should we read in that?
6: Yeah, there's certainly a cover-up here. And even the fact that there's such a skyrocket of these incidents against churches happening and the Biden administration isn't saying anything, that in itself is deeply problematic. And it's indicative of of what the Biden administration and what the left cares about, right? If there were these types of attacks on abortion clinics or on anything else that the left actually cares about, uh, we would hear nothing except about it. So the fact that we're hearing nothing about the rising attacks on churches, it really tells you a lot about uh, the people in charge in the Biden administration right now, um, as well as uh, what the media cares about. They just don't care um, about about Christianity uh, and our right to religious freedom and to practice our faith in peace.
3: By the way, do you count among those attacks against Christianity, the attacks on the pregnancy resource centers, which aren't overtly religious, but they are usually run by, and I support them, they're run by people of faith?
6: Uh, we don't count those in this report, so though all of those attacks would be on top of these. And we know that since the leak of the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, we know those have been skyrocketing as well. So we're seeing just mm-hmm. across the board uh, attacks on, on Christianity and Christian values, including the pro-life ethic.
3: Yeah, they are. Ariel. thank you very much for the work you do at Family Research Council, and uh, we really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for having me. That's Ariel Del Turco with FRC. The report is called Hostility Against Churches is on the Rise in the United States, and it is, and Christians are going to come under attack, and the Joe Biden administration doesn't really give a damn, and you're listening
0: to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Warning to Hamas at the Republican Jewish Coalition Conference. If you spill a drop of American blood, we will spill a gallon of yours. This is the Lars Larson Show.
3: Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. And one of the things I love best about radio, it's why I've worked in the business for 49 years, is we can turn on a dime. I mean, there were a lot of things I planned to talk about tonight, and I will get to your phone calls. But this story has literally broken within about the last hour or so. And it's kind of stunning. I mean, we've talked plenty about the nuclear ambitions of Iran, about the fact that that is a country that's a major league sponsor of terrorism, not just on the, in the Middle East, but around the world. And uh, we've talked about how they want to achieve some kind of nuclear weapon. And you always assume, well, they're going to get it from all those spinning centrifuges that are located somewhere in Iran. I hope our intelligence agencies, if they're not too busy messing up elections, might actually get to that. But consider this story that just broke, as I said, within the last hour or so. The U.S. Justice Department has unsealed new charges against the leader, one of the leaders of the notorious Japanese Yakuza gang, who they accuse of attempting to traffic in weapons grade plutonium and uranium and he was trying to sell it to Iran. That, this, is, this is stunning. I mean, I understand that Iran has tried to pursue making its own nuclear weapons, but I'll credit both ABC and the Jewish News Syndicate. Uh, the defendants, according to Ann Milgram, who is an administrator with the DEA, the defendants allegedly offered uranium and weapons-grade plutonium, fully expecting that Iran would use it. For nuclear weapons that is the story that's breaking so charges have been brought now usually if we've got a sourced uh story of some kind where they say we think this is happening it might be happening this is where the u.s justice department has announced that a japanese yakuza gang leader who acquired and their identifies has acquired weapons grade plutonium that he intended to sell to iran takishi ebisawa 60, a Japanese national smuggled uranium and weapons-grade plutonium from Burma to Thailand for sale to a man posing as an Iranian general. The man was actually an undercover source for the Drug Enforcement Administration. That's got to be an interesting bust where the DEA ends up finding out it's not heroin or cocaine, it's plutonium. And here's what it says in the charges. As alleged, the defendants in this case trafficked in drugs, weapons, and nuclear material going so far as to offer uranium and weapons-grade plutonium, fully expecting that Iran would use it for nuclear weapons. They said this is an extraordinary example of the depravity of drug dealers who operate with total disregard for human life. As I said, in case you missed it, In the last hour or so, the story is broken that the DOJ, Department of Justice, has brought charges. Apparently, some of this was happening in early 2020. Yakuza is an umbrella term for Japan's major organized crime syndicates, according to JNS, similar to the American Mafia. Former U.S. President Barack Obama had sanctioned the Yakuza and several other criminal organizations, which he said have reached such a scope and gravity that they threaten the stability of international political and economic systems. Ebi Sawa, the man who's been indicted, procured the nuclear materials from a Burmese rebel group. Now, where'd they get it? And intended to sell them in exchange for money and weapons, including surface-to-air missiles which the Iranians are reasonably good at making. An undercover agent told Sawa that Tehran, Tehran needed the uranium for a nuclear weapon, according to the indictment. And Sawa responded, yes, I know. On the same call, Ebisawa added that he could supply plutonium that would be even better and more powerful than the uranium. Well, I know a little bit about that. I know that you can take plutonium if it's weapons-grade and fairly readily transform it into a nuclear weapon. Abisawa noted that he did not have a license to deal in these materials, and he acknowledged this is going to be a very quiet and secret illegal transaction. How often do they get audio tape of a bad guy actually describing it? I mean, it's almost like one of those moments in a fictional movie where the bad guy has to actually spell out his plans, So mostly so the audience knows what's going on. He acknowledged it will be illegal. It will be very, very quiet. He said he supplied samples of the nuclear materials to the fake Iranian general. A U.S. nuclear forensics lab found the plutonium that he provided was weapons-grade meaning it was of sufficient purity to fashion it into a nuclear weapon if they could get enough of it. The lab also identified uranium and thorium in the nuclear samples. It's not clear where or how the Yakuza leader and his Burmese rebel co-conspirators acquired the plutonium, which can only be created in a nuclear reactor. Now, a 2010 documentary, so almost a decade and a half ago, A documentary showed that Burma had a nuclear weapons program. A U.N. report that year accused North Korea of exporting its nuclear technology to Burma, Iran, and Syria. I'm getting this at the same time you are, folks. This just broke. The Nuclear Threat Initiative, which is a think tank that tracks nuclear proliferation, does not assess that Burma has a nuclear weapons program But they're making the material. Iran has enriched uranium to 84% purity, which is just short of the 90% purity that they would need to be able to make nuclear weapons. But the International Atomic Energy Agency says there is no civilian use at all for levels of enrichment that Iran is undertaking. Now, the Justice Department said today that the charging documents do not indicate that episawa was ever in contact with any Iranian officials. He was arrested in New York, but he was faked out. It was a sting operation. He and his co-conspirator are going to be arraigned in federal court in the Southern District of New York. They mean Manhattan on uh, tomorrow. He's been indicted on eight felony counts, including international trafficking of nuclear materials, conspiracy to acquire, transfer, and possess surface-to-air missiles, and he faces multiple potential life sentences. He's currently being held in a federal jail in Brooklyn. Well, I hope they can hang on to him better than they hung on to Jeffrey Epstein, that's for sure. Let's go to Joel. Hey, Joel, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Well,
4: things have changed in the last hour. I've been waiting to talk to you, but... Yeah, I had a neighbor who happened to be a nuclear. He taught nuclear physics at Berkeley and Stanford. Yeah, and and uh, he taught me uh, a bunch of stuff that I can't tell you all about on the radio. But um, <laughs>
0: okay,
4: um, the the fact that I've been thinking for the last five years that either the Soviet Union or China would hook
0: up because they were kind of backing up, uh, Iran with
3: you know yeah. us sideways yeah i i can and, see uh, that happening in fact we've suggested before that all these other connections between north korea and iran between china and other countries between russia and iran all of them pose a real i think clear and present danger to the rest of the world and the fact that a country like iran is trying to put its hands on nuclear weapons, and Iran on a regular basis vows the destruction of both Israel and the United States. I think when somebody's a bad guy decides to threaten the existence of your country, you should probably take him seriously, shouldn't we?
4: Oh, yeah. He's a, not just your country, but the world. I mean, they've they got a religious... What they, What more than one person has mentioned in the last couple of months on the radio is that we we've got uh it's like hard to stop the religion level of brainwave that concludes that they're they're the only answer
3: interesting i appreciate the phone call back in just a moment we got a lot to talk about believe me folks 866 hey Lars. and in a moment are foreign nationals getting involved in the elections in san francisco we're going to talk about that coming up next
0: Yeah. Some solid advice from Senator John Kennedy.
1: Look, if you hate cops just because of the cops, the next time you get in trouble, call a
0: crackhead. This is the Lars Larson Show.
3: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. I find this absolutely lunatic. We've talked about San Francisco and about what I think is a crazy decision to say we want on our elections commission for the city of San Francisco a person who is a foreign national and has absolutely no right to vote, but we want her as one of the voting members of the Elections Commission in an American city. I thought maybe Sean Fleetwood could help me straighten this one out or make it more understandable. He is a staff writer for The Federalist and a graduate of the University of Mary uh, in Washington. Uh, Sean, welcome back to the program. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me what's going on. Why is San Francisco doing this, and um, is my suspicion... That, we're, that, that there are people in America who are trying to warm Americans up to the idea that foreign nationals should be voting in our elections.
7: Well, it's all about, you know, diversity here in America 2024. <laughs> and, you know, what better way to diversify our election system than to appoint someone who's not even authorized to vote <laughs> to oversee our elections? Um, but, yeah, that, that's exactly what you had in, in San Francisco. Uh, this woman, Kelly Wong, uh, this foreign national from Hong Kong, who's basically appointed, as you said, to oversee the Department of Elections in the city. And, you know, what's remarkable about this is that she was appointed by the Board of Supervisors, and the Board of Supervisors unanimously approved her. There was no dissenting vote on on the city's board. And you have, like, the president of the board out there celebrating, like, she's going to bring so much to our election system uh, but, but one of the most notable things that she talked about when she was being interviewed was that she really wanted to prioritize increasing, you know, election engagement with the city's non-English speaking populations, and she wants right. to ensure that, you know, voting materials are, you know, in, in non-English languages to extend to these other communities. And I think, kind of, what you alluded to, I think this is an attempt to normalize this type of behavior and, and this type of, um, you know, policy because. Throughout the country, you have states like California, like Maryland, that have passed laws that allow localities to essentially allow illegals to vote in local and municipal elections. So if you have, you know, a, t- a town like Chevrolet, Maryland, which allows illegals to vote in municipal elections and you have someone up for mayor or the head of the city council or whatever, you know, you could have illegals who are residing in that town, you know, go and vote for mayor or whoever's sitting on the board of that town. Um, so it's already being normalized throughout the
3: country. Well, and one of the things I worry about more are her comments, and I'm assuming they were accurately reported on, where she said she believes, and this is Kelly Wong, new member of the Elections Commission in San Francisco, foreign national, she's a Chinese citizen, uh, that she wants to make it possible for people to vote without regard to their immigration status, which is the way you kind of camouflage, I want illegal aliens to vote, or unless I'm missing that one. Did, did I get that one wrong, Sean? I think you're pretty accurate there. But it's it's just remarkable
7: because in, in San Francisco, illegals already have some semblance of voting rights. Um, so I believe it was 2015 or 2016. Voters passed what's called Proposition N, which basically allows illegal aliens or foreign nationals who are residing in San Francisco who have children in the schools, school district, or in the district schools, then you can go vote in local school board elections. So you already have some sort of voting rights for illegals there. But, yeah, I I would not be surprised if at some point in the near future San Francisco passed a resolution or an ordinance that essentially allows illegals to vote in any type of local election because this is the road that we're headed down. And, you know, kind of big picture stuff here, you know, we have this ongoing invasion at the southern border. You know, Washington Examiner put out an article a couple of weeks ago, you know, talking about how at least 10 million have come across the border And we talk about, you know, illegals and the Democrats wanting to give them voting rights. But even if Democrats at a national level cannot grant citizenship to the illegals who are already here, those people who are already here are going to have children. And upon their birth, they're automatically going to be granted citizenship. And someday they're going to vote. So Democrats are always playing the long game, even if they don't manage to get, you know, their desired outcome right now at this very moment. They have a long-term plan of essentially creating a whole new electorate to basically wipe out, you know, U.S. born citizens.
3: Well, when and it comes if to you if you legalize their status in the United States, the averages right now, Sean, and these are from uh, INS. Uh, the averages are that for every person who comes in and uh, with a green card status and stays and becomes a citizen, is allowed to go through what's called family reunification which means you can you can bring in mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, cousins, uncles, whatever, uh, to be reunified in America. And they said the average number for each person who brings in folks through family reunification is three. So if you let 10 million illegals in, which Joe Biden has done, as you point out, in the last three years, probably another three million this year. If their status is legalized in any way that puts them on a path to citizenship, it's not. 10 million or 12 million it's about four times that number it's that number plus three times that number so we're talking about from his actions or inactions over the last three years or uh, counting out to the end of of joe biden's term uh, at the end of this year could be as many as 50 million additional people brought into the country and that's on top of the 1 million a year or so that we allow to come in through the regular process and become green card holders which also totals up over 10 years to be 12 million plus three each in family reunification we're talking about perhaps by the end of 10 or 15 years as many as a hundred million additional people in a country that's now at 350 million will be at 450 million not even counting our local birth rate yeah,
7: I mean, the foreign born population is, is starting to outpace the U.S. born population. And, you know, we talk about illegal immigration all the time and, and people breaking the law to enter the country. But, but as you just perfectly laid out, you know, we don't even talk about the legal immigration system and how it's so broken and disastrous with things like chain migration, like the visa lottery, where you just, you know, basically pick a name out of a hat and you get to come and you come in, you know, like Oprah's big giveaway. It's just this whole you know, disaster of a system that's been left unaddressed and been further exacerbated under the Biden presidency. Um, and, you know, Democrats love to say, oh, this is just, you know, the great replacement racist conspiracy theory. But you have Democrats out there like Dick Durbin, you know, uh, Castro from Texas Democrat representative out there bragging about how basically this is exactly what they intend. They're bragging about how these uh, foreign-born populations are more likely to vote Democrat. And basically what we're headed towards, essentially, I fear, is a one party state in America where, you know, the Republican Party is practically non-existent, that there is no legitimate pushback. Well, and ultimately, you know, Republicans are if they don't have the power, if they're not in the White House or don't control the Senate, you're not going to be able to point you know, people to the Supreme Court. And eventually Democrats are going to control the courts who are basically just going to, you know, green light every radical unconstitutional
3: policy that comes down the pipe. And. Sadly, I think that's what we're headed towards. I think it is, too. Sean Fleetwood is a staff writer of The Federalist. And, uh, Sean, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. And I I share your concerns about this because I think I think this is an existential threat to the United States. And frankly, Joe Biden is allowing an invasion of our country. Sean, thanks for the uh, thanks for the time tonight. You're listening to The
0: Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show.
1: Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce.
0: Honestly, provocative talk radio.
2: More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women.
0: Lars. Never, apologize. For being a Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad, I let you speak. Lars Larson.
3: The answer is yes. That's why I proposed and and the House, Nancy, put it in the plan to immediately provide $10,000 in debt relief as stimulus right now. Right now for students. A minimum of $10,000 relief. Now, do you remember when that campaign promise was made? I mean, it was all the way back in the year 2020 before the fraudulent November election in November of 2020 that placed a demented Joe Biden in the White House. He made the promise, I'm going to provide immediate debt relief for literally hundreds of billions of dollars of student loan debt. Well, guess what? There's a lot that's happened in the last three years or so. And part of that was the Supreme Court telling Joe Biden, you don't have the authority to simply forgive student debt. He had originally promised or proposed to relieve about four hundred billion billion, four four-tenths of a trillion dollars in student loan debt. Now, I think that's problematic anyway, but he was told by the Supreme Court, you don't have the authority. So what has he done? Does Joe Biden follow the rules? Does Joe Biden care about what the law says? Of course not. So, just today, he's announcing another 1.2 billion of student don't, uh, lo- student debt relief for about 153,000 borrowers. These are young men and women, probably some pronouns in there too, who've decided, "I got college, I borrowed the money, I don't want to pay it back. And, of course, Joe Biden gets something out of this, too. He gets to spend your taxpayer money that comes from the 70% of the population who've never gone to college, who never got even a shot at a college degree. They certainly didn't borrow a big pile of money and then go off to college and then say, Oh, uh, gee, I got a degree in something stupid that isn't worth anything in the private sector in terms of a job. I don't really want to pay the money back. Joe Biden gets to, and he has literally done this, he's sent out emails to all the people who are getting your money to pay off their debts for their bad decisions in going to college. And he sends an email that says, I hope this relief gives you a little more breathing room. Except that, you know what else Joe Biden gets out of it? He gets to put a bunch of money in people's pockets right before an election. Now imagine the value of that. And guess what? You're paying the bill. Even if you never went to college, you're paying the bill. In any case, I want to tell you more about what's going on with this. It's actually our poll on X as well. The question we put up every day on what used to be called Twitter is now called X. And the question is, Joe Biden keeps canceling out student loan debt. Is this legitimate or is it an election year stunt? Glad to take your phone calls and your emails. If you want to join this conversation, it's easy to do. 866-HEY-LARS, that's eight six six four three nine five two seven seven. 5277 If you happen to be a naysayer and you disagree with me, we put naysayers to the head of the line. We have for more than a quarter century. We're going to do it as long as I'm standing behind this mic at eight six six four three nine. 5277 send your emails to talk at dot and if you want to vote on our poll on X you'll find it at Lars Larson show Joe Biden keeps canceling student debt is this a legitimate thing for a president to do or is it an election year stunt you can find the poll on X and then if you want to vote or call the show it's easy to do but let me tell you why this is so very very wrong I'm not saying it's not popular There are a lot of Americans who decided, I've got to go to college. Now, to some extent, they were led astray. And they were led astray by some of the worst things that politicians do. Because I've heard politicians at every single level of government, city council, state legislature, the presidency, the House, the Senate, they all come out and say why everybody should go to college. And I've told you why that's hogwash. If you talk to economists, and I do from time to time, and you ask them, in a technolo- technological society like America, what percentage of jobs actually need to be filled with somebody who has a college degree? And the answer is somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of those jobs would actually benefit from somebody who has a college degree. The other 70 to 75 percent of the jobs, you don't need a college degree. It might actually work to your detriment when you're looking for a job. You may need some technical instruction. Maybe you need a certificate you get from a community college in a specific skill, like accounting or bookkeeping or welding or whatever it happens to be. But if you're not going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, uh, a full-fledged certified public accountant, you probably don't need that college degree. It's a waste of four years, and in this case, it's a waste of other people's money. But Joe Biden knows that in an election year, he loves the idea of giving away money. He made the campaign promise four years ago. And now he's being held to that promise, except he's found out, I don't have the legal authority to do it. In total, Joe Biden has already unilaterally canceled. That is, he's canceled debt totaling $138 billion. And now this adds $1.2 billion more. He's done it without the Congress. He's done it with the opposition of the U.S. Supreme Court. He's done it against all common sense and sensibility because he's telling Americans, 70% of you never sat in a college classroom. You never got a shot at a college degree. But there are a bunch of young people who had that opportunity and they blew it. They went out and they got a degree. You know, the young lady who went out and got the degree in gender studies or transnationalism or trans transgender nonsense. You get that kind of degree and you go out and you try to find a job. Do you know what my general rule is for somebody who gets a degree that ends in the word studies, like women's studies, ethnic studies, transgender studies, all the degrees that end in studies? Do you know what your primary occupation is likely to end up being? You're going to be asking, would you like a straw or a stopper in your latte? That's what's going to happen. You might as well have not gone to college. It may have been fun to go to all those tailgater parties, to have uh, late-night sessions in the dorm talking about important stuff for four years. You basically wasted your money. And you know how I know you wasted your money? Anytime you buy something, And then you regret having spent the money or incurred the debt. And then you say, is there any way I can get somebody else to pay this debt for me? Now, as I pointed out to you, I may have a dog in the fight. I don't have a college degree. I have a year and a half of college. And you know what? I paid for it. And when I decided to take college courses over the last 30 or 40 years, I paid for them myself. I did, I certainly did not go to my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers. I didn't go to anybody else and say, Hey, by the way, I'd like to take some college classes. How about you pay for it? In fact, you know what I wish the people who say, I don't want to pay my college debt would do? I wish they go to whatever job they have today and then ask their coworkers, Hey, I went and got this college degree. It doesn't seem to be worth anything in the marketplace. I can't sell my skills for anything. Would you guys mind taking up a collection, maybe a GoFundMe? Would you pay off my college debt? And when when you tell that to people, and I may end up telling it to a naysayer or two today, they'll say, well, I can't just go to my friends and neighbors and coworkers and ask them to pay my debt. Well, if you can't do it to your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers, then how in the world are you telling your fellow American citizens, the people you don't even know, that they should pay off your bad debt? But Joe Biden is stealing the taxpayers' money, and he's giving it away because it's an election year. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show.
0: Another strong take from President Biden on AI and the weather, helping web tech, the web, the web telescope. My God, what is this? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome
3: back to the Lars Larson Show. I'm sure that for a lot of you, when you heard last Friday about the massive $355 million fine that had been thrown down on Donald Trump, your reaction to it probably depended on your politics. If you like Donald Trump, you'd say this is outrageous, and I agree. I think it's outrageous, too. To the people who hate Trump, they they didn't care whether the fine was justified or not, whether it was a stratospheric fine in a crime, so-called, without any victims whatsoever. And, in fact, with the people who were supposedly defrauded saying we'd loan him money again tomorrow if we could. We love him as a customer. You know, this is just ridiculous. But it has implications in a lot of different ways. So I thought we'd talk about it with Zach Smith, who's a legal fellow with the Heritage Foundation, co-author with our buddy Cully Stimson of the book called Rogue Prosecutors, How Radical Soros Lawyers Are Destroying America's Communities. Zach, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me on, Bars. Always just remember, to be with you. Just remember, I'm not a lawyer, so feel free to knock me back <laughs> if I get into. But is this truly a gigantic fine—one third of a billion dollars for a crime in which there was no victim?
9: Well, you're better off for not being a lawyer, Lars, law, because that means you're able to see things through a common sense lens uh, more often than lawyers are. Uh, but look, you're absolutely right. This is an absolutely astronomical fine. It's unprecedented in a lot of ways. And keep in mind that New York Attorney General Letitia James, she campaigned on a promise to go after Donald Trump and the Trump Organization to pursue this type of case. And when this case initially started, she was asking the court to impose a three hundred and seventy million dollar fine against Donald Trump and his companies. It was uh, an unprecedented amount. And she got pretty close with this judgment uh, that the uh, Democratic judge there in the city of New York uh, put forward against Trump and his companies.
3: And, Zach, I've been telling my audience, although, again, I don't expect them to believe me, but I've been telling them this is a political prosecution like like you might find in, you know, the former Soviet Union or maybe even in Russia today or certain other countries. And they say, well, you can't prove that. Let me offer you proof. And you tell me if it's valid. Right after this happened, I think a lot of other people, there were a number of big investors who said, I'm not putting another dime in New York State. That place is a dangerous environment because you don't even have to break the law to end up with effectively the corporate death penalty for your companies. So Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, Democrat, came out quickly And said, oh, to all the other businesses in New York, we're not going to do this to anybody else. We're only doing it to Trump or words to that effect. So she effectively admitted, we're doing this to Donald Trump for political reasons. We're not going to do this to every other company in in New York, uh, in New York State, that has exaggerated the value of its company or its buildings, which, Zach, Maybe I'm being unkind, but I think that that statement probably applies to just about every company in in, uh, in the state of New York. If you said, have any of you guys ever exaggerated the value of a building when you were taking out a loan? Oh, no, no. Of course not. We would never do anything like that. I, I would imagine there's there's a whole state full of guilty parties there, except that if nobody gets hurt, who cares? Well, I certainly think it's fair to say
9: there's likely a a lot of puffery uh, involved in these types of transactions. Uh, But look, you're exactly right. Donald Trump valued his buildings at a certain dollar value. He asked uh, banks, very sophisticated, very large banks, used to dealing in high-dollar, risky transactions to loan him money against those assets. I think it's ridiculous to think that those banks wouldn't have done their own due diligence because the value of the assets, the collateral against the loans, that's ultimately going to determine whether or not they get their money back if the loans went bad. But the loans didn't go bad. Uh, The banks were repaid in full, and they continued to do business with Donald Trump and his companies, as you mentioned. Now, in terms of, you know, the the attorney general pursuing only Donald Trump, you know, making this a one-off type of case, that should be very troubling to anyone. You know, this may be what the attorney general and the governor are saying today, but that can change on a dime. And I think the way this particular New York law is written is very problematic in and of itself. The attorney general didn't have to prove an intent to defraud. The words of the statute are written very vaguely. And so, as you mentioned, we're in this bizarre position where Donald Trump is alleged to have committed, you know, exponential amounts of fraud. And yet the AG never had to prove that he intended to defraud anyone or that anyone was in fact defrauded. And so I suspect because of that and the record amount of the fine, you know, Donald Trump has indicated he is going to appeal this judgment. uh, But I think all of us should be very troubled uh, by this case and by the results.
3: Let me ask you about one other aspect of this that people may or may not be aware of to be able to appeal He's already said he's going to put up the money, but he has to come up with not just the 355. He's got to come up with, as I understand, what the judge, this very political judge laid down, was I need 120% of the fine you owe if you want to appeal it. So was that the judge deliberately trying to make it difficult to appeal his decision? Which sounds like a violation of due process to me. Well,
9: look, Lars, I think this... Just given the record amount of this fine, $355 million, to sum up that amount of cash, either directly or an appeal bond, it's a staggering sum of money. I think the additional amount was supposed to be to cover any interest that accrues on the the, uh, amount due to the state uh, while an appeal is pending – but keep in mind, I think we have a long way to go before this case is ultimately resolved. It has to work its way up through the New York state court system. If it makes it all the way up to New York's highest court, the Court of Appeals, the equivalent of that state Supreme Court, each member of that court was appointed by a Democratic governor, either Kathy Hochul or her predecessor, Andrew Cuomo. And so we likely have a lot of runway left to go in this case. While the criminal uh, case against Donald Trump being brought by the rogue prosecutor Alvin Bragg in Manhattan is set to kick off at the end of March, there's still the ongoing cases in Fulton County as well as the federal cases uh, brought by Jack Smith in Washington, D.C. and Florida. And so, unfortunately, I think Donald Trump and many of his allies are going to be facing a lot of time in courtrooms uh, over the next several months.
3: I'm talking to Zach Smith, who's at the Heritage Foundation as a legal fellow. He's also the co-author with Cully Stimson of Rogue Prosecutors, How Radical Soros Lawyers Are Destroying America's Communities. And then this, this is maybe a less tangible issue. But on the same day that Donald Trump came out as a lawyer, uh, this young lady, Alina Haba. Came out and announced, uh, "We've got the money. We're going to put. The, we're going to post the bond. We're going to appeal, and we're going to win." Which you'd expect her to say. Letitia James comes out and says, "You know, if he doesn't pay that money by the end of the thirty days, I'm going to start seizing his buildings." I mean, this is so blatantly political to say, I'm going to come out and threaten the person who has a right to appeal if he meets the conditions. And, and she's saying she's just champing at the bit to be able to go down and, and slap a big, I don't know what kind of legal notice it is on the front <laughs> of Trump Tower and say, we own this now because we're taking it from the evil Donald Trump. She's, she's out of control in my book.
9: Well, to say it's a bad look is really a a gross understatement uh, of what's happening here. Look, if Donald Trump puts up the, the money, either directly or through a bond, and it fails the case, that stays in the enforcement proceedings. And the idea that Donald Trump wouldn't Pay his fine; that his assets would have to be seized is really, you know, far fetched in many cases. What would have to happen uh, in order for Latisha James to be able to seize the property, generally speaking, Trump would have to refuse to pay, give an indication that he can't pay or that he's unwilling to pay, and only then could enforcement proceedings. Uh, be levied against any of this property in the state of New York. You know, I heard another commentator say it's almost like if a criminal defendant is convicted of a crime, is released pending appeal, like the prosecutor coming out saying, we're going <laughs> to send the U.S. Marshals to, you know, go get that person, even though uh, everyone knows right where they're at and they're availing themselves of, of the legal process. It's, it's ridiculous, Lars. It,
3: it really is crazy. Zach, g- congratulations on the book along with Cully, and we appreciate the time. Thanks so much for having me on. That is Zach Smith. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your phone calls and emails. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-Hey Lars. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. We've always done it, we always will. If you want to send an email, talk at larslarson.com. You can also vote in our poll on X. It used to be called Twitter, now it's X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And you can check out our Instagram feed. All the other social media we put up, every single interview on the program is free of charge. You'll find it at LarsLarson.com.
0: The Lars Larson Show.
6: is the story of a... Ve-
0: the upcoming American elections promise some provocative politics, but be forewarned, the Green Agenda may lead to some extreme rhetoric. Die, yes, so prepare yourself by listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson show.
3: It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. We'll do that in just a moment at 866. Hey, Lars, that's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at larslarson.com and join me in welcoming Grover Norquist, President of Americans <clears> for <throat> Tax Reform. How are you, Grover? I'm doing well, Lars. Good to be with you. I want to ask you about this. Uh, You know, the the uh, 87,000 IRS agents, which if I've been following the budgets uh, closely enough, has now been dropped to 67,000 or some number less than the original number that the Democrats wanted to bring on with the promise that if you bring all these people on and spend a lot of money, that they will bring in gigantic tax collections, far more than we're paying to these IRS agents. How is that working out right now?
4: Well, there's a challenge. The IRS has made all of these promises slash threats before, and they have not been honest in talking to taxpayers about what happened to the money. Uh, And Americans for Tax Reform, we have a little uh, list of all the times over the last 50 years, the IRS said, if you just gave us a few billion for computers, why would we be having all this money come in? Then it turns out that they really can't make their computers work. Uh, and then they come back a few years later asking for twice as much with all the same reasons, and it goes on and on and on again. We recently saw the IRS, the head of it, Werfel, the head guy that uh, Biden put in there, um, you know, explaining away or trying to explain all of their misbehavior, how they've lost people's tax data to left-wing guys who come in and scoop it up, maybe with the help of IRS agents, certainly the IRS didn't stop them from stealing the stuff. Um, and they refused to punish the people who did this. They sent a signal to everybody in the IRS. If you want to steal somebody's tax data and give it to a left wing group, somebody that Biden hates, no problem. No problem. Uh, The laws will not really apply to you. It is one disaster after another. And this idea where they go, Oh yeah, we're working on it. Uh, It was embarrassing to see Werfel testify before the Ways and Means Committee, the House of Representatives Committee that oversees the IRS. He wouldn't tell the truth. He claimed not to know things he was supposed to. It was very embarrassing.
3: Well, and and does he have an explanation as to why, as a bureaucratic agency like the IRS... If you catch somebody breaking the rules, not bad enough to go to prison as they just had one person go for one conviction out of the 7,800 crimes he committed by stealing data. But why not punish people who are working for an agency that 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 break the rules? Uh, Did he have any kind of explanation for that?
4: Um, No, there is a uh, rule. Executive order slash law that uh, federal employees are not to have TikTok on their uh, computers, their iPhones, their iPads, because uh, it may be able to be picked up by China. And the IRS uh, has a rule called bring your own device, BYOD, which means you can use your iPhone, your iPad, your personal computer at home that you carry that you leave on the subway for someone to pick up um and have all of the sensitive data on it okay now normally you think for crying out loud all that should be in a computer at the office that nobody can get to but because more than half of the irs guys do not show up for work okay they claim they are working from home uh, I don't know how that works with some jobs, receptionists perhaps, um, but they say, oh, we working at home. And the, your data is on their personal computer, which their kids have access to, anyone in the house has access to. They could show it to anyone, and there's no protection. And we know that IRS do this. There was a scandal in the 90s. People were looking up the various uh
3: What celebrities?
4: financial lives of their favorite celebrities, their neighbors, their ex-girlfriends. And so they passed a bunch of laws to say no to that. But how do you police it when people take the data out of the office? How do you know who they're sharing
0: it with? And what uh, did Werfel tell the
3: Congress about that? I mean, did he say, well, you know, this is how we address that? He must have had some answer, didn't he?
4: Uh, As the answer is yes. But here's the pathetic answer oh, there's no reason to think that your computer data is safer at the office than at home.
3: That's well, that's just kind of certain. scary that, that, because that's yeah. suggesting the average level of computer security in most people's homes is almost nothing, and, and we know that. And we know that professionally run computer systems for business uh, generally have lots of protections, virtual private networks, passwording, all kinds of things to lock out the bad guys. And he's saying the IRS office is just as vulnerable as the computers in people's homes.
4: And he may be right, because the inspector general did a little study about the IRS and found that there were like 150 different super secret special systems that that are being protected, 150 different ones. Uh, When the inspector general was going in to look at this, they called and said, how many have you got? We've been asked by Congress to look into this. And the IRS said, we don't know. Uh, Could you tell us? (laughs) No, we don't think we can. So then when they realized that they were doing this investigation, they called back later and gave them an estimate number, which was wrong. Turns out the IRS, that the inspector general had figured out how many sensitive systems they had. There are 153,000, 153,000 employees at the IRS who can look at these special, super sensitive things. Okay, 153,000. And they don't patrol their use of uh, passwords, they don't patrol when they leave, uh, that they've closed down the passwords of staff who leave or consultants who leave. This is extremely vulnerable. And he didn't care, he didn't care. And when the when the inspector general was asking for help, you know, what can you give us so that we can do this? Look, no, nah, we can't help you. We don't know. Who knows these numbers? Um Even though, even though
3: in a lot of ways, Grover, that's a service to the IRS. If you say, and I know there are private companies that say, come in and show us where the holes are in our system, and then we'll go out Mm -hmm. and plug them. That would be a positive of the IRS. And they said, no, we don't want to plug the holes. Yep, yep, yep. They don't
4: care about your privacy. But, the, you know, the 1099K where they want to look at everything you gets in and out with Venmo or uh, any of these electronic things where you pay bills and so on, they want a, a 1099K statement from Venmo or PayPal saying, you know, $200 went in and out of your account. And then if it went in, they want to claim that that's income you have to pay taxes on unless you can prove it was something else. Good luck keeping track of all that. 30 million documents they think that will be, they can't and they can't keep track of what they've got now. They want more paper from you, more documents from you that they won't keep safe. They can't be trusted with what they have. Why would you give them anything new?
3: You know, usually when you've talked about this before, Grover, I've thought, well, this doesn't probably affect me. Well, it turns out it does. I pay for my granddaughter's singing and dance lessons. She's almost eight now. And how do I get that money to her mom? I Venmo it, right? I know they're gonna, they're probably gonna send me a form saying, hey, how come all these monies were paid? Well, you know, for singing and dance lessons. Can you prove it? (laughs) Well, yeah, like you said, good luck. It's going to put a lot of people in a really tough spot with the IRS, and I think that's exactly what the Biden administration anticipated. That's Grover Norquist. He is the president of Americans for Tax Reform, and we now have the IRS with an estimate of 50% of its agents working remotely from home. In other words, hey, boss, I'm working from home today good luck with productive productivity on that back in a moment we'll get to your calls I know some of you have waited a long time it's 866 hey Lars send email to talk at Lars
0: Constantine Kissin' on Hamas.
1: For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters, at least they know what a woman is. This
0: is the Lars Larson Show.
3: Can you believe that somebody set up a GoFundMe for one of the people who was wounded and wounded badly in the Kansas City shooting last week and it turns out he's the guy now accused of murder in that case. I'll get to the details on that in a moment. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866 Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Now, get a. I'm getting an abundance of naysayers, which, by the way, I absolutely love, because when somebody says, I disagree, you're completely wrong about this, Lars, I'm glad to put you on the show and let you make your best argument. Now, the death penalty has been mentioned because I pointed out that Idaho – had passed uh, through part of its legislature a bill that would say if you are convicted of a sexual crime against a child below the age of 12, that you can be put to death. It doesn't mandate the death penalty, but it allows the jury to use that if they choose to because of the heinous nature of a particular crime. Florida has already passed the death penalty uh, for rape, child rape. And I think that's perfectly appropriate as well. Go to Greg. Hey, Greg, I also mentioned today that President Joe Biden has once again, and I think illegally, agreed to pay off $1.2 billion in student loans. I think that brings him close to $140 billion of the taxpayer's money that he spent to wipe out loans from college kids who don't want to pay their loans back. What are you a naysayer about on that?
2: Well, I disagree a little bit with... Uh you You seem to be putting a tremendous amount of blame on the kids and to be fair, a lot of them are pretty naive, and they listen to their parents you got to go to college, got to go to college, they listen to their high school advisors saying, "Oh no, you just need to go, and it'll be fine it'll work itself out." And then you go to your college advisors and they, you know, tell you the same thing. Oh, you just need to get two years in and find out where you want to be. And then they push them in a lot of times into degrees that they imply will make a good living. And not all these kids are making, you know, buying brand new cars and, and, and without spending all kinds of money. Some of them can't even afford to live anywhere because the housing is so expensive. But I think the focus, it's not really fair that if you go to a real estate agent or a lawyer or a doctor and you get bad advice, you have some recourse. But these kids can be lied to by these college advisors and pushed into stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, and th- and they really don't know that much about what money is. And technically, at 18, they are responsible. But well, it's, hold on. It's That's where I was going to go
3: because, Greg, I know I, I, I get the idea. But tell me this. All of the people who made the decision to borrow tens and, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars with no collateral whatsoever, just a signature loan, they were above the age of 18. Should we hold them responsible for the decisions they make?
2: Well, you're above the age of 18 when you go to a real estate agent or a lawyer or anything else, too. I think the focus well, should hold be on. more you're on You're using Tuesday.
3: that as an example. If you go to a real estate agent, and I don't know what you're thinking of, if somebody says, hey, I think this would be a good house for you, and then you decide to buy it. If the real estate agent actually misrepresented it to you and lied to you, then that that you might recover in court. You might go in and say, this guy lied to me. Uh, but the court might also say, well, what are you saying you lied about? Well, you said it had four bedrooms and it only has two. You say, well, you're 18 years old. You walked through the house, didn't you? Yes. Did you see four bedrooms? No. Then, you know, then no harm, no foul, you're gone. So you're using weird examples If an 18-year-old says, I would like to borrow a gigantic sum of money, and I have no collateral to back it up. If you buy a car, there's collateral. If you buy a house, there's collateral. But you walk in with no collateral at all and say, I want to get a degree in college, and I promise if you'll loan me $50,000, I'll pay it back. Why shouldn't we hold those people responsible for that decision they made as an adult?
2: Well, you're you're holding them to a higher standard because everyone else can file bankruptcy and these kids can't. They're stuck with that loan forever. But my point is, the these kids ought to have First of all, they should start re- video recording every college advisor and every high school advisor so that they can have some records. Greg, did you to. take
3: every dumb piece of advice you ever heard in your life? Because I know I didn't. I, I heard I had lots of people give me advice, and some of them were very smart people. Some of them were in my business, and they said, Lars, never do this or always do that. And there were times I'd listen, and I'd say, thanks for your input. And then I'd go off and make what I thought was the right decision and then I took responsibility for my decisions. And did I make bad decisions from time to time? Sure, I did. But but I also made good decisions that were counter to the advice I was given. How long do you want to treat these adults as children? Just tell me.
2: Well, I'm, I'm not saying that we should pay their loans. I think that that's their responsibility, but I do think that we should. Well, then I'm not sure what you're saying,
3: Greg. If you're saying, well, gee whiz, <laughs> these poor kids, they're adults. If you're not suggesting we pay their loans, what are you suggesting? For I'm, goodness not,
2: I, I'm not suggesting that they don't pay their loans. I'm suggesting that we solve the problem. Well, one of the problems they solve with buying a house is you have to have enough money down to prove that you're responsible enough to even um make, actually make you payment. don't actually you don't Well, you used to have to when I Well, hold one. on. If you, you, you go and get a down. first-time
3: home buyer FHA loan, the amount of down is as low as 3%. So, if you've if you go buy a, a $500,000 house and you put down 15 grand and then the market takes a dump and all of a sudden your $500,000 house is worth 400,000. And you own fifteen thousand dollars equity in a house in which you have you are upside down. Your incentive to walk away is tremendous. So so that idea is is fraudulent, but it's still your problem.
2: And it's still a you- problem of the kids. But I do think that they should be someone. You know, they they should have to have um, a, a little what? bit better counselors and and uh advisors to push them into degrees how about we get all, how about Greece i got an use. idea
3: for you greg did your best counsel come from any government employer did it come from mom and dad exactly
2: okay well, then why why
3: that. do we have these counselors at all why are we paying gigantic sums i i would imagine that nationwide we pay billions if not tens of billions of dollars for counselors who give out you know just whatever advice they think and they think well I have a college degree. You should get a college degree, you know, which is not uncommon for people to say, whatever it is I have, you ought to get one of those, too. But if the kid at 18 can't sit down and think for himself and say, is this college degree going to be worthwhile? Is it going to am I going to be able to go find a job? And, you know, most kids who are going to a four year school, even if they did this at 18 and they're going into school, planning to graduate in four years, they can look at the job market right now and say, does there appear to be a growing market for people with a, stu- you know, with a gender studies degree or an ethnic studies degree? And if the answer is no, or the answer is the job pays about as much as uh, Starbucks or McDonald's, then you don't go pay 50 or 100 grand to get a degree to get a job like that. Oh, by the way, I do want to mention Lindell Mays. He's the guy who's now accused in the murder of a woman in Kansas City last week in the shooting that happened at the Super Bowl parade and rally. And they put up a GoFundMe for this guy. I think they've taken it down now. His family wanted to make money, and he's the guy who's now accused of murder, believe it or not.